0: You can learn more about student visionaries of the year or even nominate a student at LLS.org slash students. That's LLS dot org slash
1: students.
0: 1. They must be one-of-a-kind tales. 2. They must be believable in characterization. 3. They must have unusual special effects. 4. Besides the major monster, there must be a secondary character of weird appearance such as Igor. Five, they must confess right off that the show is a horror film. Six, they must include a pish-tush character to express the normal skepticism of the audience. Seven, they must be based on some pseudoscientific premise. Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and what you've just heard were the rules of the Universal Studios horror movie as outlined by producer George Wagner in a May 1942 Saturday Evening Post story, titled, Scare em to Death and Cash In. We've talked about Universal's rules before, in an episode very early in the life of this podcast, on RKO horror movie producer, Val Luton. Working in the 1940s, Ludin considered himself to be creating a new, realistic, and underplayed style in opposition to the Universal House rules, which had become nothing if not formulaic. This season, we are going to go back in time to when Universal's horror movies had not yet become calcified to when they were brand new, and groundbreaking, and momentarily able to invent a whole new type of sound-era Hollywood genre, and also reinvent male movie stardom. This season, we are going to talk about Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff, two middle-aged, foreign, struggling actors who became huge stars. Thanks to Universal's horror movies of the 1930s. Universal was the most prolific horror making studio during that decade. Their horror films were dominated by monster movies, many of them versions of the templates set by two films, each of which were the first of their kind. Dracula, directed by Todd Browning and starring Bela Lugosi, opened in early 1931 and became the first major American horror hit of the sound era. As the title's ancient vampire, Bela Lugosi, a former heartthrob who had fled war-torn Hungary and was not yet fluent in English, became a Hollywood sensation. The year 1931 was bookended by the release of Frankenstein, directed by James Whale and starring Boris Karloff, a one-quarter Indian Englishman who had been alternating acting with manual labor for the previous 20 years. And though he'd sometimes work in as many as 20 films a year, it took embodying an artificial, animated walking corpse with no language skills to turn him into a star. With these two movies, the first wave of talking horror movies was born. After the boom of 1931, the trend tapered off later in the 1930s, after audience interest flagged and a change in censorship rules made it nearly impossible to market the films in Great Britain. During this glory period, filmmakers explored new possibilities for horror in sound film, using sound effects, soundscapes, and score to heighten moods and scares. These were some of the most innovative films of the era in terms of the way they used technology and advanced cinematic language. But though sometimes studios like Universal spent A money to make and market horror movies, the genre was still basically considered a B genre. Most of the movies that we're going to talk about this season had running times of 70 minutes or less and would have been shown on a double feature, either before a more prestigious film Or in the case of some of the Karloff films, after a cheaper and shorter horror feature, sometimes starring Lugosi. For the most part, horror stars generally were not expected to cross over to more respectable genres, or to advance up to mainstream stardom. In various ways, Bela and Boris would each try to challenge these expectations for stars of their kind. And in various ways, each would succeed. And fail. This wave of horror movies thrived during the Depression and surged again during World War II. With their motifs of mad scientists and modern technology attempting to go one better than the Christian tradition and usually spectacularly failing, they reflected post World War I anxieties about the mechanization of death and life continuing on in a machine age. The basic thesis of these original monster movies is that it's better to be dead due to the passage of time and or natural causes than to be undead, to be forced to walk the earth when you belong in the afterlife. Thus, the audience feels sympathetic to characters like Dracula and Frankenstein, even as they're responsible for death and destruction, because there is a kind of tragedy to their villainous plights. This is somewhat more true of Frankenstein and other monsters and villains played by Karloff, whose understated, highly physical performances invite empathetic introspection. If Karloff is the quiet, sensitive bad boy of Universal monster movies, Bela Lugosi is the flamboyant hedonist. What James Spader is to movies like Pretty in Pink and Less Than Zero, Bela Lugosi is to Dracula and the best of his films that followed. When he was given decent material to work with, Lugosi invited the viewer to share in the delight his character took in perpetrating evil, and he's usually more interesting than his victims. In the worst of Lugosi's performances, he seems as trapped as poor Frankenstein in a living world that doesn't make sense to him. Once the studios, pouncing on the success of single films, milked them into franchises, old-fashioned literary characters like Frankenstein were turned into something like today's superheroes. Driven by momentary greed, Universal and their competitors unwittingly created lasting brands. These movies were controversial in their day, but also considered disposable. They weren't perceived as artistic or even historically significant until they became ubiquitous on TV in the 1950s, which is around the time that the very idea of film history became a thing considered worthy of study. Even today, most books that deal in a general way with Hollywood and its stars of the 1930s barely mention horror movies, if they deal with stars like Lugosi and Karloff at all. Today, we're going to begin by talking about why Universal started making horror movies. Then, we'll introduce you to Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff, and explain how they ended up in Hollywood, and what led each man to sudden stardom in their mid-40s, as the anchors of movies about ancient evil. In future episodes, we'll talk about Bela and his vampire movies, Boris and his monster movies and the movies that pitted Bela and Boris against one another. Finally, in the last two episodes of this short season, we'll discuss how Bela and Boris each ended their lives and careers, which will allow us to talk about how horror movies evolved within their lifetimes. Join us, won't you, for a new season. Bela and Boris. Once upon a time, many, many years ago.
1: I am Dracula. It's alive! Oh, Oh, in the name of God! Now I know what it feels like to be God! I was greater than any real, i Sure, sure. Awake. Have I been asleep? She hates me, like others. A race of atomic supermen which will conquer the world. <laughs>
0: the phone is dead. Even the phone is
1: dead. We belong dead.
0: Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. Your teams are buried in manual work. It's taking forever to close the books. Getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth. If this is you, you should know these three numbers. 360251 one. 36,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs, key performance indicators, in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist, designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com remember. That's netsuite.com slash remember to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash remember. Universal Studios was founded by Carl Lemley, a diminutive German immigrant born in 1867 who became one of the original major studio moguls almost by accident. After arriving in the United States and bouncing around the Midwest in various industries as a bookkeeper, salesman, and manager, Lemley had jumped into the movie business after observing what seemed to him like the magical truism of the Nickelodeon. Unlike, say, the customer at the department stores where he had worked, the movie customer didn't take the product with them when they left the store. In the movie business, the product stayed with the seller, and you could sell the same damn thing to countless new customers streaming in and out of your doors. Lemley proceeded to build a studio based on publicity stunts that would create new customers and keep the old ones interested. He invented a new kind of fake news when he hired Florence Lawrence. Lawrence was an actress who had been the top attraction at her previous studio, biograph where she was known merely as the biograph girl back in 1908 stars were not promoted or even billed by their real names so that movie producers could easily replace them but moviegoers fell in love with lawrence and clamored for more of the actress who they dubbed the biograph girl hoping to take advantage of her popularity lawrence had been seeking better terms at other studios And when Biograph discovered this, they fired her. Lemley snatched Lawrence up for his film company, then called Independent Moving Pictures, or IMP. Lemley was able to win out over his competitors by offering to put Lawrence's name, her real name, up on cinema marquees. But before announcing his big get, Lemley leaked a report to newspapers that Lawrence had died in a St. Louis streetcar accident. Lemley then bought ads declaring that reports of Lawrence's death had been greatly exaggerated and announcing that she was not just alive and well, but in the process of shooting her first movie for Lemley. Lemley would fully debunk his own hoax by sending Lawrence to St. Louis for a public appearance to prove that she lived to star in another one-reeler. Fans were so excited to see that Florence Lawrence was alive that they mobbed her on the train platform, ripping at her clothes to literally get a piece of her. Carl Lemly, like a certain mad doctor in a movie that would help save his studio two decades later, had created a monster. Florence Lawrence would not be the only movie star for long and once studios started not just billing and publicly exalting stars but also manipulating the news media to cover their performers mere act of living as a spectacle in itself there was no going back for the next 25 years Lemley would play out a pattern of finding hiring and or poaching rising stars early in their careers and then losing them at or near their peak, when other studios were willing to pay them more money. Not that Lemley was always a cheapskate. After the Florence Lawrence coup, Lemley spent money to lure another Biograph star, Mary Pickford. His company established roots in Los Angeles, and after absorbing other independent companies such as Rex, took on the name Universal the first Universal Studios, took over a studio built into Blondeau Tavern, a French widow's roadhouse on Hollywood and Gower, once famous for serving pigeon and rum omelet dinners. When a nitrate film fire burned the studio down, Lemley thought big about the rebuild. In 1915, he proved to the industry and the world that he was willing to spend to build up his own legacy— by cutting the ribbon to Universal City, a faux-but-fully-functioning municipality, which Lemley had built around a massive ranch studio in the hills north of Hollywood. The main purpose of Universal City was to film movies. The secondary benefit was to promote the making of movies to the consumers of movies. Lemley turned movie making itself into a participatory tourist attraction setting up bleachers in front of his sets and selling tickets to tourists so that they could watch the movies being made, and sometimes recruiting extras from their ranks. Another angle for publicity was that Universal branded itself as the studio most inviting of female workers. At that ribbon-cutting ceremony, Lemley was given the key to Universal City by the studio's female police chief. Earlier, Lois Weber, a controversial and groundbreaking female writer-director and one of Universal's star auteurs, had been elected mayor of Universal City. A newspaper described Universal as the only bona fide woman's sphere on the map, where women do all the bossing, and where man is just tolerated. That's all. Just tolerated. Despite its colorful history, Universal operated at a disadvantage compared to other major studios. By the time the silent era started to end, the film industry had already moved into the phase of vertical integration that would allow for record profits and also a cataclysmic downfall in the decades to come. Studios like Paramount and MGM made their money by forcing the movie theaters they controlled to play all of the movies they made, even the bad ones. But Universal didn't own nearly as many theaters as their competitors. Carl Lemley was extremely risk-averse and didn't want to go into debt, and so he hadn't invested in a chain of theaters the way other studios had. In the early 1920s, they had enjoyed a run of prestigious hits under the supervision of a very young Irving Thalberg. But Thalberg then left Universal to join the newly formed MGM. And five years later, a desperate Carl Lemley handed control of his studio over to his 21-year-old son, Carl Jr. The young man swiftly acquired a reputation for exploiting the casting couch, and he was perceived as a know-nothing trust fund kid by many in the ranks at Universal. After seven years, Junior would have the studio taken away from him, but not until after he had overseen the production of some of the most important horror films of all time. Universal had been a player in silent horror. Their contract star, Lon Chaney, who was known as the man of a thousand faces for his ability to transform his face and body with the assistance of makeup, which he designed and applied himself, had made two thriller classics for Universal. The Thalberg produced The Hunchback of Notre Dame and Phantom of the Opera. But like most stars, Cheney eventually gave up the small market team that was Universal for the big money and prestige offered at MGM. In his absence, Universal had produced primarily westerns and cheap comedies, and a lot of them. Junior decided to cut way back on the laughers and odors and reallocate monies that his father had been spending on mass producing a lot of mediocre movies into fewer, more expensive films which sought to take advantage of the new era of sound. His first projects were a musical called King of Jazz and the epic World War I adaptation All Quiet on the Western Front. Jr. completely overextended the studio's assets on these two productions, and while the war movie was a massive success, the musical was the opposite. In 1930, the first year that the film industry acknowledged the Depression, Universal lost over $2 million, roughly equivalent to the enormously ballooned budget of King of Jazz. Something needed to change, and fast. Desperate to turn things around, Jr. decided to compete with the richer, more profitable studios the same way his father had approached his rival, Biograph, by taking their talent. A huge horror fan, Jr. decided to try to hire Todd Browning, one of the top directors at MGM, who had made 10 movies with Lon Chaney. A former vaudeville actor and carnival manager, Browning had apprenticed with D.W. Griffith before becoming a journeyman director who worked at a half-dozen studios in the late silent era. After a short-term contract with MGM expired, Browning went to Europe and then returned to Hollywood and in early 1930, signed a contract with Universal Studios. That spring, Universal became one of several studios bidding on the rights to a theatrical adaptation of Dracula. Bram Stoker's epistolary novel about an undead count in search of literal new blood. With the studio in such financial disarray, Jr. decided that he needed to trust the instincts of MGM and Paramount, against whom he was bidding, and outbid them. Jr. landed Dracula, and he assigned the production to his newly signed director, Browning. Now they just needed a star.
1: For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's Lifetime Membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today.
0: Bela Lugosi was born Bela Blasco in Lugos, a then-Hungarian city that's now part of Romania. Bela would preserve his hometown by using it as a basis for his stage name. After his banker father died when Bela was 12, Bela ran away from his respectable home and walked 300 miles to a mining town to find work. And after spending his teen years slumming it, working with his back and dirtying his hands, at 18 he decided to be an actor. At least, this was Bela's version of the story— In mid-1930s Hollywood, Bela Lugosi could have said literally anything about anything he may or may not have done in late 19th century Eastern Europe, and the town's reporters would have printed it for lack of an interest in fact-checking. Then, as now, in Hollywood gossip, it didn't matter what was true. It only mattered what made the best story that would do the best job of selling the star. By the first decade of the 20th century, Bela was a big star in small-town Hungarian theater, acting and singing in operettas, and starring as Pinkerton in more than one non-musical production of Madame Butterfly. He became a star enough to graduate to the National Theater in Budapest, but here he was a small fish in the big pond. He served in World War I and was discharged with an injury. He went back to the National Theater, but he was not cast frequently enough to make a good living. Fortunately, a 17-year-old girl from a wealthy family was in love with him, and in 1917, Ilona Smick became 34-year-old Bela Lugosi's first wife. That same year, Bela's acting career would gather new steam when he made his first movie, a silent drama called The Colonel directed by the former Mano Kaminer, who would eventually end up in Hollywood and direct movies like Casablanca under the name Michael Curtiz. Over the next two years, Bela starred in 12 Hungarian silent films, including an adaptation of The Portrait of Dorian Gray. He found it easier to get bigger parts on the screen than he had in theater, and the quality of Hungarian cinema was rapidly advancing, to the point where Bela's countryman, Alexander Korda, predicted that soon they would be on the level of any of the European national cinemas. Tall, dark, and handsome, Bela Lugosi was beginning to make a name for himself as a Hungarian heartthrob for the age of silent cinema. And then, towards the end of World War I, Hungary erupted in revolution the king was ousted and a socialist party took over. Bela, who had been a member of a workers' union as a laborer, believed in the cause and spearheaded the unionizing of actors. About a year later, the provisional socialist government was toppled by a small faction of communists and Hungary became the Hungarian Soviet Republic. But after just a few months, Romania invaded, the communist leaders went into exile and militant nationalists took over. A purge called the White Terror followed, in which artists and communists were imprisoned and murdered. Afraid that his union organizing would make him a target of the new regime, in order to escape this fate, Bela Lugosi fled with his wife to Vienna. Life as a refugee didn't agree with the wife, and she soon left him. Bela alone ended up in Germany, where he started again finding work in movies. In German cinema, Lugosi began appearing in the types of horror, fantasy, and thriller films that he'd become known for in Hollywood, playing hypnotists and spies and Jekyll Hyde-type characters. But his career was not limited to such genres. He also starred in an epic German adaptation of The Last of the Mohicans. He thought of himself as a romantic leading man. But there didn't seem to be a path to movie stardom for Bela in chaotic post-World War I Germany, and in 1920, he boarded a cargo ship bound for the United States. He didn't speak English, so in New York, he sought out other Hungarians, eventually finding meager work performing plays in Hungarian for crowds of immigrants. There, he would be billed as Europe's greatest film star, an embellishment that wasn't true, but couldn't be fact-checked and did more good than harm. His first English-language role came in a 1922 production. Bela claimed he convinced the producer to hire a language coach out of Lugosi's future earnings, and the actor worked with the coach to memorize the full script phonetically. It would be a long time until he was fluent. In fact, there are some reports that he prepared for his first few major Hollywood parts, including Dracula, the same way. Of course, his lack of language skills didn't matter in silent film, and in 1923, Lugosi made his American screen debut, playing the villain in a war picture called The Silent Command. But Bela did not catch on as a screen actor in America right away, and over the next few years, pickings were slim for him. He netted good reviews as an Arab lover in the play Arabesque, and a few other parts followed. But he was really barely working by 1927, and as a middle-aged man who spoke limited English with a heavy accent, his prospects as an actor in the United States were limited. Then, Lugosi got the offer that would change his life. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So, whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, Go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are
1: waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price, line.
0: Boris Karloff was born William Henry Pratt, the ninth child of the fourth wife of Edward John Pratt Jr., a civil servant whose own father had been a womanizer who had sired him during an affair with an Indian woman whose identity remains blank on the Pratt family tree. The future Karloff's father abandoned his large brood when Billy, as he was called, was about eight years old. With his mother already dead, Billy grew up in the household of a much older sister, and when he turned 21, he was given a small inheritance from his mother, which he used to emigrate to Canada. He worked on farms and in construction, until making a connection with a theatrical agent who helped Billy find work with a traveling theater company. On his way to join the troupe, Billy decided to adopt a more dramatic name for his dramatic career. Boris, he seems to have plucked out of thin air, but he believed that Karloff was a family name on his mother's side. Boris spent the next few years traveling first Canada and then the U.S. with stock companies, and by 1919, he had made it to Los Angeles. There, he semi-settled and started playing small parts in movies. His quarter Indian heritage gave him just the right look to become a go-to for quote-unquote exotic characters, which usually meant villains. In 1921, he played evil Arabs in three of the four films in which he was cast. These type of parts were not big enough or lucrative enough to sustain him. Between acting jobs, he'd support himself as a truck driver or working construction. After a decade and a half as an actor, by 1926, Karloff still only had one foot in the movie business. That year, after a day's work at Universal Studios, he had gotten a ride home from Lon Chaney. Chaney, whose stardom was based on the zeal and technique he brought to the total transformations he took on for most of his roles, had given Karloff a bit of advice. The secret to success in Hollywood lies in being different from anyone else, Chaney said. Find something no one else can or will do. What the screen needs is individuality. Boris took Cheney's advice to heart, but it didn't help right away. Karloff's first significant break came when he was cast, almost as a fluke, in a key supporting part in a play called The Criminal Code. A few months after the play closed, Karloff was cast in the film version of The Criminal Code, and the director of the film, Howard Hawkes, took a liking to Karloff and expanded his role. The Criminal Code was just one of 18 films Karloff was cast in in 1931. It was while he was shooting another of these films, playing another criminal in a universal picture called Graft, that, as one story goes, director James Whale spotted Karloff in the studio commissary. Whale's assistant approached Karloff and asked if he would join Whale for a cup of coffee. After that meeting... Whale began making drawings of Karloff as Frankenstein's monster. Boris and Bela did not start in Hollywood on equal footing. Though both were in their 40s when they became horror stars, and both were foreign, Karloff was English, which conferred on him a patina of respectability. Bela Lugosi did look like a young 49-year-old in Dracula, but this was still an advanced age and he was unmistakably foreign his hungarian accent could be difficult to understand and it combined with his unique way of carrying himself and moving around would have made it impossible for him to be the leading man in hollywood that he had been in his native hungary but he refused to accept this until it was too late unlike lon cheney who was a famous actor who appeared in horror films Bela became famous for embodying a single horrific character. Audiences perceived him as being horrific, not as being an actor. This would become a sore spot for Lugosi, who had been a versatile performer in Europe and who thought of himself as a better actor and potential star than many of the men who beat him out for better roles. Sometimes, as we'll see, he was right. Karloff, meanwhile, never enjoyed the kind of pre monster movie success that Lugosi had, but he was able to make more of his fame. He got involved in the formation of the Screen Actors Guild, and as soon as he had a little bit of power as a star, he fought for more. After his shelf life in horror movies expired, he was able to reinvent himself, appearing in two major stage successes and working almost constantly on television. He was also lucky in that the sequels to Frankenstein that he appeared in were genuinely good movies. In fact, as we'll see, Bride of Frankenstein is widely considered to be the best movie in this whole 1930s horror cycle. Karloff never drifted into obscurity, and he outlived Lugosi by about a decade. But when you actually try to break down which actor really had the more satisfying career and who has left the more indelible legacy, you'll find that it's not that simple. I went into this season a die-hard Karloff fan who thought Lugosi was a one-and-done Dracula with not much else to offer. I changed my mind, and maybe you will too, as we spend the next five weeks with Bela and Boris. Join us then, won't you? Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. This episode was written, produced, and narrated by Karina Longworth. That's me. Our editors are Sam Dingman and Jacob Smith. Our production and research assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. And our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. For more information about this episode and other episodes... Please go to our website, you must remember There you'll find show notes for every episode with information about our sources, as well as lots of other goodies. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can, any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter at RememberThisPod, and we're on Facebook and Instagram, too. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secrets and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night.